Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Coming up on today's episode, we go inside the Conservative Democratic Organisation group of Boris Johnson supporters want to give Tory party members a greater say. And could he be back by the end of this year? We'll find out. We'll speak to one of Boris Johnson supporters, plus Matthew Paris, Times columnist, on why he doesn't think it'll work out quite like that. In a moment, we'll have the columnist panel. But first, every Monday, we are counting down every general election since the Great Reform Act of 1832. Yes, it's Lara Spirit in the archive. Yeah, lovely stuff. It is time for Lara Spirit in the Archive. The Spirit in the Archive. Going on up into the Spirit of the Archive. Do you see? It's Lara Spirit, Times Red Box supporter. Hot-footing it from the Times Archives. Every Monday, we are counting down a different general election uh, from uh, the Great Reform Act uh, of 1932. We kicked it all off last week, and Lara's back for a look at another election. Morning, Lara. Morning, Matt. So, which election are we looking at this week? We are looking at the 1835 election uh, this week. So, uh, it's the election that follows shortly after that infamous Tamworth Manifesto that I'm sure uh, you'll want to talk about, which is widely considered to be one of the founding uh, documents of conservatism. Yes. So, let's first. Um, so, last time around, 1832 election, uh, <laughs> the um, the Whigs won, the Tories lost. Wigs under Earl Grey, Duke of Wellington, as always. What happened in the, in the sort of intervening years? Uh, and then um, uh, what was the sort of the background of going into this election in 1835? Yeah, so the last time we spoke, we spoke about uh, the 1832 election, which was, of course, uh, you know, the last election, the first election to be held under that new Great Reform Act, which kind of completely changed the electoral landscape of uh, the country and because partly because uh, you know the Whigs had been instrumental under Earl Grey uh, in bringing that into uh, into law the Whigs won a kind of landslide majority in that election now in the interim there's not a huge amount of uh, political stability that had been promised uh, as part of that kind of reform act and actually a, a number of people in the more property owning uh, classes became increasingly uh, discontented with uh, the leadership of uh, the Whigs. Now Earl Grey having already resigned, uh, we'd seen in his earlier political uh, career, finally resigns in 1834 over uh, issues with Ireland. Uh, now the King uh, kind of asks Sir Robert Peel to come back. Uh, there's a kind of caretaker government from 
the Duke of Wellington, this Tory minority uh, government. But the uh, the King asks Sir Robert Peel to come back from Rome, where he's uh, he's having a nice time in Italy, and he runs back. <laughs> and rumours are swirling about the dissolution of. Uh, Parliament rumours that uh, the Times editorial line is uh, is very frustrated about. Uh, they're they're keen for people to not lose their heads, but uh, these rumours are going around that there'll be a general election very soon. Uh, and into that steps uh, Sir Robert Peel in his constituency uh, in Tamworth, uh, and he is called upon to uh, to make clear what the Conservative policy on the Great Reform Act, but also of the other uh, kind of abiding issues uh, of the day around pensions, around marriage rights, and most crucially at that time around the reform of the church to make clear what it is. And uh, the Times receives, I've just tweeted it out, but the Times receives uh, just before print these uh, these kind of quite immortal words from uh, Sir Robert Peel. Uh, and he issues this very long statement that the Times publishes in full uh, at that time that we've just found in the archive, uh, where he basically says, uh, you know, uh, the modern conservative movement is one of uh, is one of kind of careful deliberation. Uh, and on the Great Reform Act, it is, uh, you know, this is the final and irrevocable settlement of a great constitutional question. And he kind of urges people who support him uh, to avoid a perpetual vortex of agitation and basically pledges to be a more pragmatic, listening, uh, conservative party and one which he hopes is reflective of uh, of the widest possible coalition uh, in the United Kingdom. So uh, it's a it's a great foundational document and it's frequently cited as by uh, kind of voices on uh, of, of Tory moderation for why uh, the party has been such a flexible and successful electoral force uh, in the past. Uh, and it's fascinating reading it uh, in the times I've, I've i've put it out with the the kind of uh, is preceded by uh, this kind of note from what looks like the editor basically saying we've got this big document from <laughs> sir robert peel and it's come in uh, with not enough time for us to actually give it enough consideration so we're just going to print it here in full and then afterwards we'll tell you uh, what we think it says the hour <laughs> come on yeah, yeah. Oh. actually read it actually read it because it's terrific so this is okay sorry <laughs> thursday december the 18th 1834 uh, this is the times yeah. have just got hold of the very first election manifesto what does it say it says, at an early hour, half past three this morning, and when the article which follows this was in type, we received the address of Sir R. Peel to his constituents at Tamworth. The anxiety of the public for some authentic declaration of the policy of the new government has induced us to give this document as conspicuous a position as its importance demands. The hour at which it reached us precludes all possibility of comment till we can bestow upon it that calm consideration to which, on every account, it is entitled. And there follows the address of uh, Sir R. Peel. It's quite funny seeing <laughs> Seeing them insist that it's been given such conspicuous placing in the paper when when you look at the archive it's just a sea of words in uniform size. Yeah, you'd have no way of uh, you'd have no way of knowing just how conspicuous it was. And I suppose the, the, the really striking thing when you when you look back at that that manifesto, sort of for the first time, you know, a party leader essentially laying out what their principles were going to government. And that sort of acceptance of the Great Reform Act, which so many Tories had opposed, and at various times in history since, the, the, a party, whether it's, I don't know, Tony Blair accepting essentially the economic uh, consensus of, of Thatcherism. Uh, now, you know, Je uh, Keir Starmer has to accept that Brexit has happened and not seeking to un unpick it all. And it's interesting that, you know, as ever, there's nothing new in politics. And that's exactly what Peel is having to do here. And actually, yeah. it, it ends up proving successful. Yes. Well, it ends up proving successful in that it is definitely this election that uh, follows in January and February is definitely one of the most successful ones in this century for the Conservative Party because Peel wins 100 seats. But he doesn't win uh, a majority. And indeed, he's forced to 
uh, to grapple with a minority government and his first ministry, uh, which is only 100 days or so long, actually has none of those main uh, achievements or, or kind of, you know, big picture things that we associate uh, with him, things around, you know, the Corn Laws and Catholic emancipation. Those don't come now. And part of that is because uh, the Whigs form this uh, this kind of opposition form in 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 uh, in Parliament, and they end up kind of bringing the government down. It's interesting as well as an election because it's one of the kind of earlier electoral packs uh, that we've seen. There's a uh, there's an Irish Repeal Association and Whig electoral pack, which ends up being one of the reasons why uh, the Conservative government aren't able to hold on uh, for that long. And actually, if you read uh, the Times editorial line at this time, they're absolutely furious with the Whigs uh, for being so uh, obstructive to uh, to the Tories. And uh, there's some great words uh, in the kind of February 28th edition of the, of the 1835 uh, Times edition, where it says of the Whigs, today has been their sole object, tomorrow they leave to chance, or rather to a certainty of evil, which I just think wow. Times are mincing their words at all. Yeah. Uh, and kind of saying they've contemplated their return to office and nothing else. There is nothing in their actions or declarations whence a calm observer could deduce on their part the slightest glimmering of reflection as to the means of retaining power or employing it as this our judgment might direct. Uh, so it's a it's wow. again it's a very <laughs> it's a very interesting it's also interesting reading the writing style in the Times at this time because uh, I think some of us younger journalists now are taught to write uh, with as much brevity and as few words as possible. Uh, and that actually, is not that's how the uh, how the how our predecessors <laughs> did it. Although, like you said, sometimes they're a bit bold, you know, they're a bit more outspoken as well. Lower spirit there, and you can access the Times archive. Times subscribers can just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash archive and read a lot of the stories that we've been discussing. Right now, it's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, every day at this time we're joined by two of our favourite columnists. And today we've got, as ever, Times columnist Rachel Vester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. And uh, no Libby Purvis today, so a bit earlier than normal, but it's always nice to have him. Uh, Director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Times Business columnist Paul Johnson's here. Morning, Paul. Hello. And Paul is also a member of the Times Health Commission, which Rachel is chairing. So, uh, Rachel, explain. We talked a lot about the uh, the Education Commission uh, that you you launched, chaired, published a report from, and then lots of the ideas were immediately picked up by well both parties, as far as I can tell. What's the what's the plan with the Health Commission? Well, if anything, health is even more urgent and pressing, isn't it, as a priority? You just look at the ambulance queues outside hospitals, the waiting lists uh, for operations and care, the social care crisis as well. So, what we're going to do is is do a really kind of long-term, uh, pragmatic look at the whole of the NHS and social care and also public health. And as we did with the Education Commission, we'll be taking evidence, I'll be travelling around looking at uh, examples of things that work both in this country and abroad and just draw up a list of recommendations for what could actually make a difference. And we're looking for kind of pragmatic, practical solutions uh, that will actually improve the NHS. Because I think what's fascinating is it's always seen as a religion, the health service in this country, but faith in it is really waning. So the, the poll that we've had done um, for the Health Commission launch today really shocked me, actually. Two thirds now think that provision is bad and 80% of people are saying the NHS has got worse. And I think every a lot of people now are beginning to experience either problems with getting an appointment with a GP 
or problems at A&E. And also for the staff working in the NHS, it's becoming unbearable. So one of our um, commissioners, Wahid Aryan, described to me how he's an A&E doctor. He'd come out of his hospital. There were 14 ambulances lined up outside. He, ha- he opened the door to everyone and he had to choose only two patients because there were only two beds. And he said, of course, all the patients needed care. So it's just, it's becoming really tough, both for the staff and for patients. And we're going to come up with um, some ideas to make it better. So take us through, who, is, who else is on the commission? It's a mixture of medics, people, as I mentioned, Wahid Aryan, Jane mm. Dacre, the former president of the Royal College of Physicians, Matthew Taylor, head of the NHS Confederation, some business leaders as well. So Stuart Rose, uh, the... Uh, chairman of ASDA, who did a review of the NHS for David Cameron, um, Jim O'Neill, the former Treasury Minister as well, uh, Henry Dimbleby, who founded Leon and is a he's a campaigner on healthy eating. So it's a mixture of people. Uh, Andrew Dillnot, who looked at the uh, did the review on social care, uh, and we're taking a sort of deliberately broad approach. So as we did with education, actually, it's not just about waiting lists and hospitals. It's about how do we stop people being in hospital and getting into hospital and if they do need to get there how do we get them out again at the other end because we're never going to sort of fix the crisis unless we fix all the elements of the system and then paul your role presumably is to sit there and say well that all sounds very expensive uh how are you going to pay for that then well, I hope it goes a bit beyond that. I think, uh, I, think Rachel, I think Rachel will agree I did a little bit more than that on the education uh, commission. Uh, but, you know, but, but the cost is important. The NHS is way and, a, way and far the biggest thing that government spends its money on. Um, and despite all of the problems that Rachel's talked about, we're spending more and more and more, not just in absolute terms, but as a fraction of the total that government spends. So something like one pound in every five that government spends um, goes on, on the health service. And if you look at public services, I don't think about money on debt interest and welfare and so on. It's about 40% of everything that government spends. And whilst uh, spending on the NHS has um, gone up more slowly than usual over the last 12 years or so, it's still gone up much faster than spending on everything else. Uh, And if you look over the 2000s, when spending on everything was going up, spending on the NHS was going up faster than everything else. So if there's one thing that all parties agree on, it is that the NHS needs more and more money over time. But what I hope we get into in this commission is much more uh, than the money, actually how you deliver this stuff. Uh, Lots of, I think, really important issues around workforce planning, how staff in the NHS are treated is incredibly important, and clearly things around how IT um, systems work, how efficient the system is, whether it's uh, how we deal with uh, the big problems in mental health, whether that should be part of the NHS or something separate, Uh, and a lot of the issues around waiting lists and so on, we need to understand what's going on there. I mean, I think most people are surprised to find that waiting lists have been going up, not because more people have been joining waiting lists, but because fewer people have been coming off them, um, uh, despite the uh, increased money and resources the NHS has had over the last two or three years. So an enormous number of things to delve into here to understand what's happening. And the system, of course, matters. Getting people out of hospital into social care is a big uh, has been a big issue. Um, and one of the things that continues to be a case is more and more people are spending longer and longer in hospital, possibly because they can't get out into social care, possibly uh, because since COVID, people who are going into hospital are sicker by the time they get there. 
And is it possible, Paul, when you're sort of zooming out and trying to look at these things in the biggest uh, possible way, can you start sort of modelling, well, actually, if we did do something about obesity, I, I, you know, there's always slightly nervous when politicians start saying it will pay for itself. But is there a point at which you, you can really address some of the things which are making people sick later on? So you sort of start taking pressure out of the system? Or do you think the system is so in such a mess right now, it just means spending lots more money to do more of the operations to clear the, the waiting list? Well, certainly in the short run, um, you know, I mean, if you're talking about reducing obesity or changing people's behavior that takes a long long time to have an effect uh, and the problem in a way with um, health is that if you sort out one problem another problem comes along um, you know, we've reduced smoking a lot um, it's not obvious that that's actually been helpful for the NHS because people who might otherwise have smoked and died relatively early live longer and possibly mm. have more problems over a longer life for the NHS to sort out now it is the case that uh, our lifestyles increase obesity and so on mean that more people have a whole range of different problems multiple comorbidities as they call it in the uh, health service and they're often very expensive um to treat but actually I, I i don't think that certainly in the short to medium run action on public health is going to have an enormous effect on the kinds of pressures that the nhs is facing at the moment in the longer run uh, then it can have that then, then it can be helpful but we do always have to remember that health service is not like anything else it's um one, if you if, if you cure someone once they have a horrible horrible tendency to carry on living and then get ill again so actually it becomes more expensive the better you get at health rather than less expensive which is true in most other parts of the world and how much Rachel of the problems that we're seeing now are and we we saw this in in various parts of the the public sector when in the early days of the coalition and an austerity cuts were made and I think Theresa May famously when she was Home Secretary said accused the police of of crying wolf that they'd cut police numbers and and crime had still gone down then and of course over time it started going up again and Boris Johnson won an election on the promise to to replace all the officers that had been cut it's the same true in in the NHS they're actually giving it the tightest possible, albeit increase, uh, in funding, just over time, are we now seeing the cumulative effects of underinvestment in social care, in local councils, in mental health? And now that's all being seen in the sort of the A&E departments of hospitals across the country. I think it depends what you spend the money on, as you say. So I think there has been a massive and devastating squeeze on social care and mental health. But the NHS as a whole, I mean, one of my, the most interesting IFS stats to me when we were doing the Education Commission was the figure that over um, the same period when NHS spending increased 45%, education spending went up 3%. So there's a choices have been made, but it's about where within the NHS or and health and social care that you spend that money. And I think one of the problems, which is one of the benefits for the Health Commission, is that politicians never want to look at this in, over the long term because they're always thinking about the next election. They ne can never get beyond that kind of five-year cycle. So they never can really invest in long-term provision for care or long-term changes that might bring down obesity because they always think about how are they going to get elected in two years time so I think one of the benefits we've got as a health commission is we can take that much bigger picture and really look at it in the 
properly the long term. So the workforce plan is an absolute classic example. We interviewed uh, Amanda Pritchard on Friday and she said, you know, she pointed out that the NHS is spending three billion pounds just on agency staff a year and that there's a huge reliance, over-reliance, as she put it, on foreign-born doctors and nurses. That's because the NHS hasn't trained up enough doctors and nurses of its own because the Treasury hasn't approved the medical school places because of that kind of short-termist attitude. So if we can take a kind of longer-term approach, in the end, the long-term arrives in the present. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Chickens come home to roost or something. Yeah, Amanda Pitchard, of course, is the chief executive of uh, NHS England. It was really interesting, that interview in the the Times on on Saturday. Uh, uh, And so basically, I suppose this is going to land, what, the end of the year, just in time for the general election? Yeah, final report next January. So we're taking a whole year. And so, yes, exactly, hoping to influence manifestos and the next government, whoever it is. Yes, um, we'll, uh, I will definitely keep an eye on that throughout the year. Uh, Paul, you've taken a look at uh, owner-occupied homes. People who own their own homes, but you think there aren't enough people in them. Well, that's one way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, more than half now, actually, of um, owner-occupied homes have two or more spare bedrooms uh, and that's up from a bit more than a third 25 years ago so there's a there's a big change in the way that people who own their homes are using them and that's partly because the average age of course of people who are owner occupiers is rising as young people remain renting uh, and people uh, many people many many millions of people are staying in the family home long after the children have left now that of course is uh, absolutely up to you if that's how you want to spend your time rather than going through the hassle of moving uh, but the point i was making is that we actually make it um really difficult to move stamp duty in particular makes moving home very expensive it actually incentivizes people to stay where they are and is one of the reasons it's one of many reasons but it's one of the reasons that we have this problem in the housing market where younger families can't find uh, appropriate homes to buy uh, and older people stay in their uh, unnecessarily um, and often undesirably big properties because we charge an enormous amount of tax if you actually want to change. So you could easily have two families living next door to each other with similarly valued homes, uh, one one family wanting to move into a bigger property, uh, older single person wanting to move in a smaller property, and we charge them thousands, potentially tens of thousands of pounds for essentially swapping their houses. And that that is uh, extremely damaging. And this isn't just anecdote or theory. There's pretty good evidence that um, stamp duty really does have a big impact on the number of transactions that happen. What do you think of this, Rachel? Is this a good idea? Should we be encouraging people to, to downsize? I think Paul's argument in his column is absolutely compelling and it's completely obviously the right thing to do to reform stamp duty. The problem with it is if you get rid of one tax, you have to raise the money somewhere else. Um, So for the Chancellor, he's going to have to find another tax to put up if he wants to get rid of stamp duty. And the way in which people's psychology works is they're absolutely happy for a tax to be removed, but they're much less happy for a new tax to be put on them, (laughs) even if it's for the same amount of money. So I think in the end, the problem with this It's not about the pragmatism of the policy. As always, it will be about the politics. But it does seem to me that there must be a way of shifting to a kind of more effective system, perhaps with higher valuations um, on expensive properties for council tax or something like that. They do seem to... um, There doesn't seem to be enough tax raised 
in that way. Um, but then you have to be careful because you could end up with some people who don't have a huge amount of income but happen to be in a big property and then end up getting whacked with enormous um, property taxes. Yeah, and once you start getting into uh, revaluing for, for council tax, there's a reason why no government of any colour has got anywhere near that. Exactly. For donkey's yeah. ears. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Right, right let's, let's move on and uh, talk about M&S. So um, we seem to talk a lot recently about shops, uh, big chains closing stores or moving online. Well, M&S, Marks and Spencer's announced it's going to open 20 new shops throughout Britain, creating 3,400 jobs. Well, Harry Wallops, a retail journalist, has been writing about this for The Times. Um, Harry, this is sort of a bit of a surprise. As a general rule, talking about M&S always used to be a sort of, you know, their, their best days are behind them. How have they managed to turn this around? Well, uh, the simple answer is food. Uh, their food sales have done astonishingly well in the last few years. And in fact, the last year or so, they seem to maybe like a slow oil tanker have turned around their perennially underperforming uh, clothing stores. Um, but but we ought to not get too excited about this. They're opening 20 new stores. And this comes after last year, they announced they were closing 67 so it's kind of a rejigging of its of its estate. It's closing uh, lots of slightly smaller rubbish stores and opening a smaller number of bigger, flashier stores. Um, does that mean that the old thing about people buying their pants and cardigans from M&S is less true? Instead, we're buying sort of what, like quinoa salads? <laughs> well, I think what they really want you to do is on the way to the quinoa salad, pop in a pair of pants into your basket. Uh, so they are opening some what they call full line stores, which is uh, clothing, some homewares and some food. But of the 20 new stores, um, only eight of those are full line stores and uh, the rest are going to be food halls, slightly swanky food halls. If you live in certain uh, postcodes in London, you may have seen them propping up uh, in the last uh, couple of years. But I, it is it is a vote of confidence that the high street uh, while struggling, is not completely dead. People do still want to go into town occasionally uh, to go shopping, and that was very much proven over the Christmas period. Uh, thanks, actually, Royal Mail going on strike did a huge um, uh, uh, help uh, to the high street because lots of people thought, oh, my gosh, I can't trust some useless de delivery company to get my Christmas presents on time. I'm actually going to do what I used to do, which is go shopping in a shop. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and M&S uh, and, and some other shops did really well over Christmas. And the whole click and collect thing is also a, a big benefit to high street stores. Uh, so, God, go uh, Rachel, Paul, um, are you a fan of M&S, Rachel? Um, not a huge fan. The thing that I think is interesting from what Harry was saying is that they're, mo they're sort of shift towards almost destination shopping. So rather than the shop on every high street, they seem to be turning into the kind of big superstore, um, which I think other, other brands are doing as well. So rather than you thinking that everyone's just going to go along the high street and go into lots of different places, they want you to go to one major uh, sort of destination shop which does seem to be a shift. And then perhaps also top that up with shopping from home on, online too. So that's interesting, Howie. Is that in a way, I mean, it's merging more and more into a sort of old-style department store, the ones that we thought you had Debenhams and your British home stores. So you could buy your trousers and your pants and a sofa um, and pick, do your sort of food shop. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, the, the, the department store is dead. Long live the department store. And they're not the only ones. I mean, fascinatingly, uh, so some of these new M&S stores are taking on sites that used to be either a John Lewis, in the case of the boring Birmingham, M&S is moving in there, or indeed Debenhams. They're taking over a couple of the old Debenham sites. And next uh, is also doing it. Next, who have, have been one of the biggest success stories of the high street of the last uh, two decades. They are sort of snapping up lots of those unloved brands that keep on going bust. So things like Jules and, and various other clothing brands. You now go into a Next, and it's not just their own label. It's a whole range of different brands, homewares, makeup. Uh, clothing as well and again it's like well this is just like an old-fashioned department store and i thought yeah. department stores were dead so people you know, this is people want it what they've the backlash in some ways is against the internet when you can have everything but it's just as an awful word coming up here it's not curated and of course what shops always did was they just chose what they thought we might like and they put it on a shelf and actually lots of people really like that they don't want endless choice they want the certainty that actually yeah that's quite decent quality i'll go to that shop and i'll be able to find it so go on then paul normally i ask you what the chancellor should do to try and bring down the deficit uh, where would you buy your pants <laughs> <laughs> probably um, m&s i mean i i think i'm um i think i'm getting old though i used to i used to really hate food shopping at, at, in, in m&s there was something about it that uh, put me off but as i've got older and older i've got more and more into going food shopping at m&s but i have to say i think one of the things that's helping the um high street is just how often it's such a pain um, trying to buy anything off the internet. There's actually a brilliant little video on BBC Wales which so, goes through what it would be like to go shopping um, in person if it was like the same as the internet. And you kind of, you just, uh, this uh, video of someone going to a shop and being asked their name and date of birth and ask for a password and then look through a window <laughs> to prove they're not a robot and then having to maybe, put put some passcode in again and then being told it's wrong and having to start the whole thing whole thing from the beginning which is i'm afraid too often my experience of online shopping paul johnson and rachel sylvester then of course you can track the times health commission throughout this year uh, just subscribe to the times go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box up next is boris johnson really staging a comeback 
So, giving the members of a political party a bigger say in how things are run sounds uncontroversial enough. Who doesn't like a bit more democracy? But if you want to know just how big an impact it have, it can have, just take a look at the open warfare that engulfed the Labour Party in the 1980s and, of course, more recently in the Corbyn years. And it isn't just Labour. The Conservatives have been badly split in the past over whether to give members a say in choosing a party leader. And now they're split again. There's a new group called the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which aims to reduce the role of MPs in the selection of the party leader and to allow local associations much greater freedom in the selection and deselection of MPs. All sounds a bit familiar if you remember the days of uh, Momentum and Jeremy Corbyn. Well, it's got the backing of some high-profile politicians, including Priti Patel. But critics suspect the whole thing is a front for those who would like to see Boris Johnson back in number 10, ousting Rishi Sunak. Well, in a moment, we'll hear from Stephen Greenhalgh. He is a Conservative peer, former minister under Boris Johnson, former deputy mayor. And he's going to explain exactly what the campaign group is all about. We'll also hear from the Times columnist and former Conservative MP, Matthew Paris. But first, Times Radio's chief political commentator, Lucy Fisher, uh, here to talk us through it. Morning, Lucy. Morning, Matt. So remind us how it works at the moment. We all, I think the entire country became experts in uh, how <laughs> Tory leadership contests work because we had so many of them. Uh, but it's MPs are ultimately the gatekeepers of who gets on the ballot before members get a vote. Well, that's right. So just to do a quick history lesson, up until 1997, it was only MPs that selected the leader. William Hague was the last um, party leader selected that way. And he then decided to change the rules, replacing it with a system that allowed members to select the leader from a short list of two drawn up by MPs. So when it comes to the rules of the contest now, they differ from time to time. Um, uh, depending on what the 1922 committee decide regarding the timeline and precise thresholds of um, MP nominations needed. If you remember last summer, uh, in, in the July to September um, contest, firstly, you needed 20 MP nominations to get uh, into the ballot of MPs. And then in the October um, contest, you needed 100 MPs to sort of cut down the time the contest took. So it can change from time to time. But roughly, the idea is that MPs whittle it down to the last two and then members vote. And so that's obviously what happened in the summer. And uh, um, that was, you know, that's how it panned out with uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, who ended up on the ballot. Um, let's take a listen. Uh, let's go back a little bit. Like I said, a bit of a history lesson. Uh, this system introduced by William Hague. First went to practice in 2001, of course, when, Willie, when Ian Duncan Smith uh, became uh, toilet. Let's take a listen. There voted for Kenneth Clark 100,864. There voted for Ian Duncan Smith 155,933. I therefore declare that Ian Duncan Smith has been duly elected as leader of the Conservative Party. There we are, Sir Michael Spicer, chairman of the Tories' backbench 1922 committee, announcing the result that it is Ian Duncan Smith who is the new leader of the Tory party. The peasants have revolted, many will believe, in Tory ranks, and they've taken the party over. And I'd also like, as Ken has too, to thank the party at large, who despite everything, despite all the adverse comment, have shown that they at least are not apathetic when it comes to elections. They will have given a lesson, I hope, to everybody that elections are important and their turnout shows that the party is alive and well and we can build on this. 
that was uh, Michael Spicer announcing the result in 2001. The BBC's Nick Robinson uh, talking about the peasants have taken over the building. And Ian Duncan <laughs> Smith thanking uh, the membership. Well, no wonder Ken Clark doesn't really like the current system, given that he, he lost uh, several times when he ran for the leadership. Here's what he told me last week about the role of mem- Tory party members uh, in choosing who the leader is. Let's take a listen. Party membership should not decide it. Uh, they, they, can give their, they should give their MPs their views, and the MPs will be influenced by what they know, uh, the opinions of their strongest and best party workers and all the rest of it. They won't ignore them, but they shouldn't have the choice. MPs are, are professional politicians who work alongside all the candidates. They know them extremely well. They do know what kind of prime minister they will be. They're in a much better position to judge. And you can't inflict on a parliamentary party somebody who happens to have made an entertaining stir or made some mark of some kind on the paid-up party members. Uh, that was Ken Clark speaking to me last week, uh, Lucy. And, of course, the, what he's, he's I mean, putting his finger on there is that you can't have a situation where... The, the membership impose on MPs a leader that, that can't command their support. Jeremy Corbyn found that problem. So many of them are constantly calling for him uh, to go. And, and actually, lots of polling shows that, that party members, whether it's Labour Party members or Conservative Party members, actually, they're an odd bunch of people who join political parties and they're not really in tune with the, the, the wider public opinion. Well, no, that's right. And uh, fascinating that William Hague, uh, having brought in the new uh, rules, said about five years ago that he was spectacularly wrong to have done so because his aim at that point had been to enlarge the membership, try and make it more representative of the country and aim um, in total to to sort of revive the grassroots of the Conservatives um, with this goal of getting to a million members. Well, today it still falls far short of that. It's not even a fifth of that number. It's about 170,000. And as Haig said about five years ago, when he commented on this, he said, most of the Tory members are wonderful people, but they are often the first to point out that they are not remotely representative of society at large or even of their own voters. And I thought it was interesting um, in the leadership contest last summer that when we had the early polling come out, it uh, it showed that among members, um, Liz Truss was well ahead of Rishi Sunak. But among the public at large, Rishi Sunak seemed to be more popular. So if you're looking to kind of elect a leader that's going to win elections, then it's not necessarily going to um, going to get the best candidate for that either. Lucy, thank you for that. Uh, Times Radio's Chief Political Commentator, Lucy Fisher. Well, uh, what uh, is actually the plan for the Conservative Democratic Organisation? Uh, this morning, I caught up with the Tory peer, uh, St- uh, Lord Greenhalgh, no, Stephen Greenhalgh, who worked close with Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London. He was a Deputy Mayor uh, to Boris Johnson. Then became a Minister under Johnson in 2020, uh, uh, which is when he also got his peerage. Well, uh, he's now Vice President of the Conservative Democratic Organisation. And I just started by asking you, what is this group all about? Well, it was, it was founded by uh, Lord Crudders, and it's a move to get grassroots members to have a say in the direction of the Conservative Party. Uh, and I felt, as someone who rose up through the ranks of the Voluntary Party, that it's something that was worthy of my support. So I, I joined the organisation, and they kindly offered me the post of Vice President. But we've got to recognise that there's been a long-term decline in the membership level of the Conservative Party. And I joined the party back in 1986, um, there was very much very vibrant local associations in those Thatcher years. By the late 90s, uh, the membership was still relatively high, um, 
estimates around a half a million. But today, membership doesn't isn't is barely over one hundred fifty thousand, and the Labour Party's got members over four hundred thousand, fifty percent of which live in London alone. So there's a real membership crisis in today's Conservative Party. What is it that you think would change in the Conservative Party if it had more members? Well, I mean, first of all, you get greater political activism. It would be a place for... I mean, it's where I met my wife, Matt. Um, uh, you know, I met her canvassing on the streets of Fulham. Um, and uh, we've been married for 25 years. Um, I'm not saying that's the only reason why you get involved politically, but it was a great way to meet like-minded people um, with a shared sense and the beliefs, uh, certainly of freedom within the rule of law, um, low taxes, um, and uh, self-reliance. Um, I mean, the, the Conservative Party has these enduring values. It's a broad church, and more members means more activism, as far as I'm concerned. But I suppose we're talking about who is running the country and who has the best policies for running the country and can command the support of their MPs and the country at large, rather than a sort of dating service. Well, no, I, I, no, I'm just saying that the Conservative Party wasn't just a dating service. I'm just saying that a large Conservative Party with active memberships that take an interest means that, uh, that I believe the party benefits from that. Without the strong grassroots, you, you, you won't have the political following you need, um, I, I believe, to, uh, you know, to, 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 to affect communities. If you have, I was started off as a branch chairman in, in, in Fulham. And if you've got lots of, lots of people who live there and work there, then you get to know the issues of that area and, it, and it's built from the bottom up and everything's top down and the members have absolutely no say then they wither on the vine and I think the political parties fortune suffer as well and we see that in local elections. Uh, let's talk about what the the where this was born out of and what how it's been perceived. Lots of people see this as a vehicle to try and restore Boris Johnson. There's a there's a, a group of people who supported Boris Johnson. You've known him well. You worked with him when uh, he was mayor of London and uh, you were minister in the uh, in his government. Um, he was uh, forced to resign last year after losing the support of his MPs, ministers, and Tory party members. Um, what is well, it? I don't agree with that. With so, that? I think that's the wrong. I don't. If I might just step in there. Well, first of all, yes, about fifty of my colleagues in government decided to resign in a very coordinated way. They were the herd. Um, I have to say there were notable people, myself and Eddie Hughes in the Department of Leveling Up, who I, I describe as the counter-herd, who resigned because Boris stepped down. Um, he still retains significant support within the Parliamentary Party. Um, he is always, right the way through this, had the overwhelming support uh, of the vast majority of members. That's shown through polling um, carried out by a number of organisations, including Conservative Post. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think uh, you know, the premise that he somehow lost everybody's support is simply not borne out by the facts. Last July, at the height of all of that, uh, the, the, when, when the Chris Pincher uh, scandal came on the back of Partygate, 59% of Tory party members in a YouGov poll said he should resign. He'd lost the support of Tory party members as well. Well, I mean, very rapidly by, um, I think, October, when it was, uh, you know, some of his supporters including myself, felt that um, he should be considered following the, the, the trust interlude. Um, it was quite clear the polling was had moved again. Polling moves. I mean, you can't take the worst poll in the worst week and say the, the, the person's finished. This is a person who led the party to an 80-seat thumping majority. He's electoral gold dust. I saw him win London in 2012 when the Conservative Party as a brand was lagging in the polls. There was no man on this planet that could have won that election but Boris Johnson. He's electoral ma magic. And we all know the one person the Labour Party fears 
is the return of Boris Johnson. Yeah, if you look at the me, current... I mean, the CDO is all about ensuring that we have a competitive party with big activists, big numbers of activists, and an interest in Conservative Party politics, Matt. Uh, I've joined this for different reasons. This is not some kind of route simply to get, uh, you know, the sitting Prime Minister removed. I'm a loyal Conservative, uh, but I do believe we need to have a, a situation where our members do have a say. We come up with sensible proposals. Uh, this isn't just a, a you know, Trojan horse to get Boris Johnson back. It's something I believe needs to happen. A reinvigorated party membership is good for everybody. Whoever's Prime just Minister. On, on the subject of Boris Johnson, he's not electoral dynamite. If you look at the YouGov uh, trackers, uh, which had when he won in 2019, he was doing very well. On every single metric... It le more than half, in some cases, two thirds of people think he's incompetent, untrustworthy, weak, dislikable, and indecisive. He's not electoral you know dynamite put those at all. Polls in, put those polls in the bin because the moment well, there's an election, like he's electoral stardust. I've watched him win election after election after election after election. So on that score, I simply don't agree with the polls. They change. So why did the Conservatives lose so many by-elections like, uh, on his watch in the last twelve months or so that he was Prime Minister? Well, um, when the when the members that you're talking about could have been out there campaigning, you lost by elections to the Labour Party and the Lib Dems well, in the north and the south in, in the, the cities all, of all areas. All, all, all parties in midterm lose elections. Thatcher lost elections. Uh, other Conservative pr Prime Ministers that were extremely successful lost elections in midterm, but the party stood by them. Now, um, as far as I'm concerned, Boris Johnson at the helm wins general elections. That's it. And so is that what CDO is all about, about trying to no, build up I've the membership? No, I just said to you, it's not about that. CDO is about the membership, the grassroots membership of the Conservative Party, having a say in the future of the party. We want an elected party chairman that's answerable to members. We want a situation where the whole party structure is no longer top down and members have absolutely no say over who's selected as their sitting MP for often decades. Um, we want members to have uh, the ability to be heard on policy matters in a way that they were when I first joined back in 1986. These are not radical ideas, and it's something that I believe needs to happen in order for the Conservative Party to remain a winning force in politics. I mean, th this, this idea has been tried in real time in the Labour Party. They massively expanded their, their membership. They gave the party, uh, you know, they, there was more votes on policy. They installed Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, as, as sorry, as party leader. And we know what happened in 2019. Isn't this a, just a sort of Tory momentum? Absolutely not. The one thing I can certainly say is I've never joined an organisation that was going as a lifelong Conservative Party member, a lifelong Conservative Party member for all my adult life since the age of 18. I would not join a group that would allow entryism. Every single person that will hold a position within this movement is a card carrying member of the Conservative Party and therefore vetted by central office. Uh, what about the risk, and this is true, the Labour Party found this, the, the, you know, they got all these hundreds of thousands of new members, but they were um, out of step with, with, with public opinion. That actually, the sort of people who join political parties are a bit odd. You and I are a bit odd. We follow politics very, very closely. Normal people don't do that. And actually, there's a big disparity between uh, people who are very politically engaged and the wider public. And we saw that when, you know, the Tory party members chose Liz Truss. They, they were told by uh, Rishi Sunak what would happen. They chose this trust anyway, and exactly what Rishi Sunak predicted unfolded. So actually, isn't it better that uh, Conservative MPs know these people? Me. 
the, the members had absolutely no say who was on the ballot. There was a massive move to get Boris back on the ballot, who had both beaten both Rishi and or Liz Truss. The membership was just presented with two names that had gone through a process of election through the parliamentary party. I think the whole leadership and Hague reforms needs a, a review. So the, the members get a, a true say in the leader that they that they want, rather than the two that are presented and the one that is discounted, the one that I believe is electoral dynamite. That's a that's a small part of the reforms we're seeking as part of the Conservative Democratic organisation. But what happens then if, as happened in the Labour Party, the Conservative Party membership chooses someone who doesn't have a broad base of support within the Conservative Parliamentary well, Party I think, amongst MPs? I think, I think you need to get the leadership right so that the, the, the Parliamentary Party... I mean, clearly, a Prime Minister does need to hold the Parliamentary Party together, so the leadership process does need to take that into account, but not to the extent where the Conservative Party membership, membership have so little say in the process, and that's why we believe the members need to be trusted far more than they are today. That, that is an important part of what we're trying to do to increase... The democracy and to make sure the members take back control to use a euphemistic phrase <laughs> and so um, when the members have taken back control when, what's the time scale for that and do you think that boris johnson will lead the conservatives into the next election well I'm, that's two questions matt and i do believe that um this is something that needs to happen um you know in the next in the first half of this year uh, we've got a spring conference where we can start to discuss this uh, with colleagues at spring conference. Uh, then we've got the local elections and maybe shortly after the local elections, uh, you know, we can convene and see where we are as a, a political party. So I think we're going to see the shape of this uh, campaign um, really gathering momentum in the next few months and particularly by the middle of the year. Um, I believe Boris has a strong probability of returning. I think I said Cincinnati will, Cincinnati will be back in number 10. Uh, strong probability this year, and if not this time, he will be back. I believe he's the Conservative's Harold Wilson. He will serve two distinct terms as Prime Minister, and I believe his second term will be far more successful than his first, as I believe it was in City Hall. And what's wrong with Rishi Sunak? Why not just get behind Rishi Sunak, get the party MPs, members, you know, with, what, 18 months probably from a general election? Wouldn't it be better if you put all this effort into supporting Rishi Sunak? Why not Why not do that? What's wrong with him? Well, my, my personal view as, uh, uh, as as someone who's been in politics all their life, through student politics, through to um, as a young man standing as a councillor in a hard Labour area, winning that and taking that from Labour with 50% of the popular vote, I don't see him as an election winner. He's won a safe seat in Richmond, North Yorkshire. He's not fought elections. I mean, he frankly, I mean, this is he, he seems to be talking to me as though, I, I, you know, I'm watching Jack and Ori. Uh, I don't feel that's someone who connects as a real genuine person. I don't see him as an election winner. Uh, and politics is all about getting elected and then you can govern. Um, he's got he's got strengths as a manager. But what we need now is not just the mindset of a manager. We need the soul of a leader and the art of a politician. And that's something that Boris has in spades. That was the Conservative peer and Vice President of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, uh, Stephen Greenhalgh, uh, who I spoke to a little earlier on. We are taking a look at this move to take back control for Tory party members. It's called the Conservative Democratic Organisation. Uh, lots of, uh, of those involved in it want to see Boris Johnson back in number 10. Is it a good idea, though? Well, one person who knows the Tory party inside out worked for Margaret Thatcher, became a Conservative MP. And now, of course, Times columnist Matthew Paris. Morning, Matthew. Morning. 
Uh, what do you make of this move, the Conservative Democratic Organisation? Stephen Greenhouse says it's not a Tory momentum. It looks a little bit like it. Tory members try to impose a, a leader on the party that MPs themselves wouldn't necessarily want. Well, I've just been listening uh, to, to your interview uh, with him and, and within a, what, a five or six minute interview, he went from saying he was a loyal Conservative and backed the Prime Minister to attacking Rishi Sunak. There is no question what this whole thing is about. It is just a front to get Boris back into Number 10 Downing Street. He, he says he wants it to happen in the first half of this year. I mean, look at the record of when parties choose their leaders. What has Democratic Party membership selection of leaders given us? It's given us Ian Duncan Smith, Liz Truss, and under the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. There is absolutely no modern argument for a minority organisation, which the Conservative Party only has about 160, 180,000 members, for a, a tiny unrepresentative section. Of, of, of the electorate to, to choose who the leader should be. It should either be the electorate as a whole, which it is in the end, or it should be the members of parliament who are going to serve under that leader. We can discuss till the cows come home the idea of, of what's called democracy, but which is actually anti-democratic, a, a small party group choosing the leadership. But the truth is, we are just looking at a front organisation for the return of Boris, and it's as simple as that. I suppose there's a, there's a challenge that both parties, in fact, probably all parties have, is that if you don't give party members a say in things like who leads the party, why would you bother joining? And obviously, one of the things the Labour Party found, if you can get lots of members, you get lots of money because they have to pay to be members. Is that a challenge for the Conservative Party? Or should they just give up on being a membership organisation, but then they end up relying on big billionaire donors instead? Money money plays a part in this as well, doesn't it? It, it does, and it, you're right. It is a huge challenge on the doorstep. I've spent a couple of decades trying to persuade people to join the Conservative Party as members. And they say, what do I get? Um, this is something that they can get. They can get the chance to foist a completely unsuitable leader on, on the party. In the old days, you, you were talking about it with uh, Lord Greenhalgh. In the old days, it, it was a it was a social organisation. It was, a, in some ways, a dating organisation. The Conservative Party used to have a million members. It might have been worth asking them then, a million people, who the leader of the party could be, because the, the party had its sheet anchor, so to speak, down into public opinion. But now we're down to less than 200,000. We, we can't offer them uh, that that perk. And the trouble is, there, as you say, very few perks are joining a political party. And I'm afraid the other one is that if you are really enthusiastic, really zealous, really ideological, that's going to cause you to join either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. And we've seen where that leads. Finally then, Matthew, what's your, what's your hunch? Do you think this will work? Will Boris Johnson be back in number 10, leading the Conservatives into the next election, as Lord Greenhalgh hopes? No, it, it, it won't work. You know Boris as well as I do, Matt, and I don't suppose... He's even behind all this. He just lets all kinds of people, his friends, go out and say what they like, do what they like, start all kinds of rumours, run all kinds of things up, all kinds of flagpoles. He just stands back and enjoys being the subject of, of, of everybody's conversation. He'd be delighted that this 
interview this morning has turned into another discussion of Boris Johnson's <laughs> leadership. In the end, he'll funk it, I have no doubt at all. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.